Good morning. Hey, if you are a guest, my name's Rob, or if we haven't met, I'm glad that you're here this morning. We'd love to get to uh, talk to you, hear your story, meet you, answer any questions about New Hope for you. Um, I didn't grow up in church, and so I didn't uh, start attending church until I was almost in college, and uh, that's when I became a Christian. And what I learned when I started coming to church, a whole lot of it didn't make sense to me. Some of the words that they were singing and some of the things, uh, you know, what is communion? Why do we do that? And so if that's you, I'd love to sit down and just kind of explain that to you, answer any questions that you have about that. Uh, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 25, and so if you have a Bible, you can open it up. We're going to be in uh, Acts 25. Now, last week, how good was Scott Witt? I'm, I, to be able to go, yeah, to be able to leave uh, on vacation and have somebody who's a part of the church uh, step up and bless the church that way. Can we thank him uh, just for serving us last week that way? Thank you. Uh, my family and I, we just got back from a trip. We went on vacation, and uh, we don't get to do that a ton, and it's been a little bit, and so uh, typically when we go on trips, I have a hard time, like, really disconnecting, um, and uh, I check email, or I'll check in on different things, and this time I just committed 10 days, I'm not going to touch email, and we're really going to disconnect, and that's what we did, and we spent a lot of good time together, didn't look at the, the screens, and uh, as much, we watched some movies, uh, but we didn't uh, look at email and such, and spent time with family. We're on, out on the beach. It was awesome. Ate seafood. I did. My family ate chicken fingers, but I ate awesome seafood, and uh, it was heaven. It was awesome. Um, and while we were on this trip, uh, hanging out and spending time together, uh, I crossed over the uh, anniversary, like my four-year anniversary of being the lead minister here. I've been at New Hope for 12 years and have been in this role for four and so I was able to like, reflect a lot on these last four years and pray and, uh, about what God might have next for us as a church. It was just a really neat time. And one of the things that God pressed on my heart, uh, he's been doing so for quite a while this year, uh, pressing heavy on my heart. Um, and the pandemic especially highlighted this. It's kind of become like a magnifying glass for this issue. Uh, nothing really big or fancy, but it's this uh, slow drift among Christians away from God's word. It's been really heavy on my heart all year, and getting away and spending time reading. I get to read books that I want to read, uh, and it's been a lot of fun when you're on uh, vacation. And this just became something that was occupying my prayer life and my mind and my thoughts. Just nothing big, nothing fancy, just a simple, slow, steady drift away from a commitment to somewhat, but really an understanding of God's word. Let me put it simply. Christians don't know their Bibles, and uh, worse than that, what I'm finding is there is not a feeling of a desire to remedy that. There's not a deep desire for them to want to change that quite a bit. And some, maybe a lot of our church culture has de-emphasized the importance of biblical literacy. So understanding what the Bible has to say and replaced it instead with Christian principles and Christian values that are great and they're good, but they've replaced the emphasis in discipleship on actually reading and understanding what God's word actually has to say. From topical sermon series to, to feel-good small group curriculum to self-help cultural tools, the church has kind of fully embraced this drift this drift and this idea of slowly drifting away from discipleship being about what God's word has to say. Now, again, this isn't everybody, but this has become a big issue. And at some point, somebody has to put their hand up and say, hey, enough's enough. Like, we, we've got to get this under control. If you've ever been to the beach, you've seen what drifting's like. If you've ever been out in the ocean, even waist high or knee high, you know that you'll be tossing a ball or hanging out. Before you know it, you look up and you're a quarter mile away from where you went in the water. 
And this drift, it happens slowly and it happens uh, on purpose for sure. But there's oftentimes when we don't realize that it's happening to us. You see a lot of this in church culture. And what happens is you think, no big deal. These are really good principles. This is really good. Like all this makes me feel good. I enjoy it. And that's all fine until crisis. Or until like a global pandemic, I'll give you that. Like, right, we've never had that happen before. But a global pandemic hits or you walk through tragedy And all of a sudden, the storm that surrounds your life begins to chip away at and reveal the foundation that you've been building on. And I'm watching that foundation fail time and time again. And it's heartbreaking. Look, this isn't easy. Like, this is not super enjoyable to preach. I'm going to be honest with you. This is hard. But it is a trend that we're beginning to see over and over again, this idea that Christians are drifting away from God's word and depending upon lots of good stuff, but that good stuff isn't the Bible. And it's difficult to see. You remember this slow drift, it's a tool of the enemy. You remember what the Bible says about Satan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? It says he was the craftiest of all of the creatures. It means he's a master in deceit. And I don't know about you, but when I've been deceived in my life, in the midst of the deceit, I have no idea I'm being deceived. Hence, deception. That's the whole concept. And Satan begins to do that. He begins to come into our life and whisper certain things and, and put certain things around us that, that, that make us think something might be kind of true because it feels good, but he's a master deceiver and he makes things. He makes things that are not true, feel like they might be, and he deceives us. He's crafty. He's deceitful. And C.S. Lewis wrote a really well-known book called The Screwtape Letters, and the premise of the book is a demon in training, being trained by his demon uncle, how to go and dr- help these people that love God drift away from him. In the book, there's this correspondence between uncle and nephew about the subject of the nephew's work. And here's what he says. He says, the more often he, the subject of your work, feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Do you catch that? The more, the more that you feel like doing something, but then don't ever act on it, the more that action is less likely to happen, and then the longer that goes on, you're actually going to stop feeling the desire for what you started out for. So the more we desire to read God's word, to actually open up the Bible and to study it and to learn about what God has to say about things, but don't do anything with it, all it is is, man, I really want to, but like I, keep, like, I don't have time. The less likely you are to actually do it, and the longer that goes on, you won't even want it. See, you felt this, right? I felt it. Seasons in my life where, yeah, I want to get into God's word. I want to study it. I'd like to take a class. I'd like to really just feast on God's word and learn it and understand it and apply it to my life. I'd really want to. But man, the days get long and work is demanding and I get home and then you got to help lead your household and then you got to spend time and doing all these other things. And then there's projects to do. And before you know it, it's 11 o'clock at night and then you drift off and fall asleep or you're watching a movie. Oh yeah, I really wanted to read. Oh man, I really wanted to do that. You put certain things in your life that you think are good things, but they distract you and they slowly pull you away. And all the good intention about getting in and spending time with God and you're distracted by TV shows or sports or activities or scheduling. And it just begins to occupy our time over and over and over again. Everything begins to distract us. I mean, we we jump on social media and before we know it, we're on a rabbit hole that lasted three and a half hours getting us politically charged up about something when we really wanted to start out reading God's word and we end up not doing it. That feeling you get when that happens That feeling you get when you feel like, man, I really wanted to do this and I didn't, that's not an accident. That's not something that just mistakenly happened to you. 
you have a very real enemy. And that enemy desires nothing more than to destroy your life. And he does it in very subtle and deceptive ways. He wants to drift you further and further away from any desire you might have to get into God's word. Satan is no fool. And this drifting that he's been doing is wreaking havoc on families. In recent history, we've outsourced discipleship away from the home. We've outsourced it to all these different things. And then a global pandemic hits and magnifies the, the, the difficulty in this outsourcing. Why? Because then when we can no longer outsource, we have no idea how to interact with God in the home. We have no idea how to interact with him in the home. One of, one of the things that struck me on my trip, we were out at the beach and we're playing in the sand. It was really funny. Here's a picture of my family and my kids playing in the sand. That's me. They've completely buried. Uh, and they're, they buried me and they built stuff and they jumped all over. It was so much fun. And two thoughts struck me. Uh, one, how incredibly grateful I am to get to be their dad. Like I have a lot of fun as a dad. I, I just love it. And so we just had so much fun and I, this overwhelming sense of gratitude hit me. And the second thing went back to C.S. Lewis again in a different book he wrote called Mere Christianity. And in this book, uh, this explanation of Christianity, Lewis says these words. He says, you can do a lot of fun things with the sand, like bury your dad and build sand castles, but just don't build your house on it. You can do a lot of fun things in the sand, but just don't build your house there. He's echoing Jesus' words on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus uh, explained the difficulty of building your house on sand because a storm's going to come and that foundation is not going to be strong enough and it's going to wipe you out. One of the books that I read on break uh, while I was away was a book called Family Discipleship. I'd highly recommend it by Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin. In the beginning of their book, they used the family as, an, as a way of describing this really big problem that we've had going on. Here's the words that they say. But before I get to these words, real quick, I want you to hear it. Like this is speaking to parenting, this particular book, but I want you to know this applies to every area of life. You can take what's being said in the quote we're about to read and apply it to your individual life, the way you interact if you own a business with your employees or your coworkers if you work somewhere, whether you're single, whether you're young and married and don't have kids, or you do. You can see the lessons to draw from this. Here's what they said. Children are, an immeasurably, are immeasurably valuable. You, a parent, are the guardian of an immortal soul, a cherished human being, an incalculable treasure, the very image of God himself. When it comes to parenting, sometimes you get to enjoy it, and sometimes you have to endure it. Amen? Amen. Uh, it's wonderful and unpredictable. It is the most fun, upsetting, messy, beautiful, disappointing, and encouraging position in the world. Raising kids is an endlessly challenging adventure, and it comes with a never-ending list of responsibilities. One of the grandest of those responsibilities is the call to all parents to be disciple makers in their own home. And here's how he defines disciple maker. This applies anywhere you live your life. A disciple maker is a follower of Christ helping others follow Christ. No matter what your household looks like, your family in the, is, the temporary, is the primary instrument and environment for discipleship in all of the fantastic and flawed ways that it might be worked out. Your persevering and often thankless spiritual leadership is the, is, in your home is the most important thing you will ever do with your life. To parent and without deliberately discipling your child is to build your family's house on the sand. Boom. We will be held accountable for how seriously we took God's word and following after Jesus, being understanding what it has to say and the instructions it has for our lives and the way that we're called to live because of it. 
we have a real problem on our hands. And this isn't new. I mean, this has been going on forever. I mean, back in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, we deeply want a revival of domestic religion. The Christian family was the bulwark of godliness in the days of the Puritans. But in these evil times, hundreds of families of so-called Christians have no family worship and no wholesome instruction or discipline. Here's the question. How can we hope to see the kingdom of our Lord advance when his own disciples do not teach his gospel to their own sons and daughters? Like, yeah, it got me too. Let's just pray we're done, right? <laughs> We've got a problem on our hands. What do we do? What do we do? How can we rephrase the question? How can we expect to see the kingdom of our Lord Jesus advance when his own disciples won't tell their coworkers about him? When his own disciples don't pray together in their marriage? When his own disciples don't talk to their family members? How can we expect to see the kingdom advance when we don't take the discipleship of following Jesus seriously? We don't spend time in his word. We get so easily distracted and drift. What do we do? I want you to consider how seriously you take every other important area of your life. Think about the physical areas of your life and the time that you put into them. I mean, think about this. You make living arrangements. You prepare meals for yourself. You schedule things. Some of you on paper still, others electronic. They had a professor in college that literally scheduled his bathroom breaks during the day. I've got six minutes and 43 seconds. I can go to the bathroom. And he would schedule it in, like insane. But we put a lot of attention into our schedule. We put a lot of attention when we need to choose to purchase a vehicle or we want to build or buy a house, when we want to choose what outfit to wear. Some of us should put more time into it than others, me. Uh, and and you, get other, you choose those things. You spend a whole lot of time uh, choosing what you want to eat, how you want to cook it, where you want to go, how much money you want to spend. Talk about budgeting. You lay out a budget or you don't lay out a budget. We put all kinds of attention into these things. And here's the thing. If we didn't, it would be really weird. We look at people who have a home where they don't clothe their children well and they don't put food on the table and we think that's horrible. As a matter of fact, you can get arrested for not doing that. You can go to jail when you neglect some of these important areas of your life. And on top of that, when we see people not paying attention to these areas, we can get a mix of emotions, right? You see somebody not take care of their home financially and you get frustrated. It's like, why don't you take care of your house? Why don't you pay your bills? Why don't you do these things? Take care of your family. And you can be frustrated with it. You think it's really weird. Like, this is why the whole idea of seeing people without their clothes on throws us off. Like, if you see someone streaking, you're just like, that is not normal. That's not the right thing. And why? We laugh about it. We poke jokes about it because it doesn't fit. It's this awkward thing, like we're not supposed to see that. And so when we see it, it just throws us off completely. Here's my question. Why isn't it that weird when we see people who claim to be Christians who disregard God's word? Why doesn't it feel off when we see people who proclaim Christ refuse to live for him? Why doesn't it look weird to us? Why is it all of a sudden, oh yeah, they say they're Christians, that's good enough. Why isn't discipleship? And the lack thereof, something that really stands out to us when we look at the way different people are living. And this brings us to our text today, Acts chapter 25. Super long intro. I know, I got you. But here's the lesson we're going to learn. Two, a couple lessons we're going to learn from watching the Apostle Paul live his life. The way he interacts with these rulers and these leaders is going to teach us valuable lessons about how we can live our life when it comes to handling God's truth. But here's the thing I need you to hear before we get there. This is the hard part of this. We've got a big problem on our hands, but there is no shortcut to the solution. There are no shortcuts in God's kingdom at all. 
When you study the Bible, God does not use shortcuts in the maturity of his people. He just doesn't do it. You think about it. I'm going to build a case for it now. I don't want to just throw out a statement and not give you some background for it. But just think about the, history, the big narrative of the Bible. Think about it. If you know your Old Testament, in the Old Testament you have different characters that went through quite a bit. Abraham and Sarah. We're introduced to them in Genesis chapter 12. God comes to them at the ripe, old, fertile age of 75 years old and tells them, you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham's like, that's super weird. It doesn't fit, but you're God. And if you say it can happen, it can happen. And then what? 25 years. 25 years after the promise is made before he actually has Isaac. 25 years of waiting. 25 years of questioning. That was not an easy road, that 25 years. There are no shortcuts in God's kingdom. See, what about Moses? We love talking about Moses. We love the Ten Commandments. We love the plagues. We love how he had courage and he stood up to the most evil dictating ruler in the day in Pharaoh and he stood up to him and he freed God's people from captivity and they went on and they lived into the promised land. We love talking about Moses, but we don't always talk about is the 40 years he spent in the desert before he was able to free God's people. 40 hard, difficult years learning how to be a shepherd. 40 hard, difficult years being fearful of returning to the people that had rejected him. 40 years of being prepared to be entrusted. What about Jacob? You see, Jacob, he goes and he finds this girl he falls deeply in love with. He's just so in love with her he wants to marry. He goes to the father-in-law, Laban, and Laban says, yeah, you can marry her, but you got to work for me for seven years. And we think, man, can we put some biblical policy back into the way we do life, right? i got a daughter. Seven years seems fair, okay? you got to work seven years if you want to marry my daughter. And he says, seven years, I'll do it. He does it. But Laban deceives him. Oh, I thought you meant that daughter. I thought you meant Leah. But if you want, if you want Rachel, you got a, another seven years. So seven more, 14 years he works. There are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts in God's kingdom. My favorite is Joseph. God comes to Joseph in a dream in the book of Genesis and tells him, you're going to be a prominent leader with a lot of influence for me. But he doesn't give him a date. <laughs> he doesn't put a time stamp on it. And so you read about these really difficult things he goes through, and Joseph's brothers beat him up and throw him into a hole, sibling rivalry at its best, and sell him into slavery. He's sold into slavery and ultimately gets uh, accused falsely of sexual allegations. And because of those false accusations, he's thrown into prison, and he's sitting in prison when these other prisoners tell him, we're about to get released and we're going to remember you. But then you come to Genesis chapter 41, verse 1, and you read these dreaded words, two years passed. They forgot about him for two more years. All in all, 13 years of Joseph's life from the moment he received that dream to when God fulfilled it. 13 years. There are no shortcuts. Well, this same thing's true in the Apostle Paul's life. You remember when we met the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9? He's, this murder, he's on a murderous rampage to kill and end Christianity. And then he meets Jesus and becomes a Christian. And what happens next? Well, he, Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, shifts the story from talking about Paul to Peter. And you're like, wait, chapter 9 was Paul? All of a sudden, we're in chapter 10 with Peter. What happened? And we learn that it's 14 years later before Paul arrives on the scene at Antioch to continue doing ministry. And we're like, what? 14 years? What in the world happened in those 14 years? Well, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that he supernaturally heard from the Lord Jesus. So he was learning from Jesus out in the desert. 
for three of those 14 years. And the rest of that time he spent back in his home city of Tarsus doing ministry, unlearning his old life and now learning his new way of living, learning how to walk with Jesus, being shaped and molded so he could be entrusted. One person said it this way, Paul spent 14 years becoming the kind of man that could be entrusted with God's kingdom. I love that. It's been 14 years becoming the kind of man that could be entrusted with God's kingdom. Well, now we've read that the apostle Paul is back on the scene and he is entrusted and he is faithful and he goes through difficulty. There are no shortcuts to maturity. There are no shortcuts. And so he gets thrown in prison and released from prison. He gets beaten within an inch of his life and then he heals only to be beaten again. And he goes from one city to the next. And we've spent weeks studying his journeys and what they have to teach us. And now he comes to this series of court trials where these Jewish people have created such an uproar that Rome has to step in to settle the uproar. And Rome steps in and says, before we have any kind of a revolt, let us deal with this guy, Paul. And so they bring him before one ruler and they bring him before another ruler. And in the midst of all of it, he gets beaten up. There's an assassination attempt on his life. He's confused. He's not sure what's going to be happening. And then these beautiful words that we read in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, they said these, and we studied these before. It says, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul, and he said these words, take courage, Paul, be courageous. As you've testified me by, about me faithfully in Jerusalem, so you will also testify about me in Rome. But here's the thing. He didn't put a date on it. He didn't timestamp it. And Paul quickly learns that the promise that he's going to end up in Rome and nothing is going to stop him from getting to Rome is probably going to come with a pretty rough journey getting there. He's beaten again. He's thrown in jail. And we studied last week, he's brought before all these false accusations are thrown his way and he just stands firm. He's just a beacon of integrity and character over and over and over again. And then he's thrown back in prison. And if you open your Bible to Acts chapter 24, we're going to see what's taking place in his life. A little bit of context. Acts 24 verse 24 says this. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, judgment to come, Felix got scared. He didn't like what he was hearing. It didn't sit well. He said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. How many, how many Christians approach the Bible that way? When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So Paul's before Felix. Felix doesn't like what he's hearing about Paul's preaching because Felix realizes if this is true, and I kind of think it might be, if it's true, it means I'm going to have to change the way I'm living. Not going to do that. I've got power. I've got influence. I've got comfort. I'm not going to change the way I'm living, so I'm done with you. So go back to the jail cell. And then back and forth they go, back and forth. But there's something about Paul that Felix decides, I can't kill this guy. The easiest thing for Felix to have done would have been to kill Paul because it would have made the Jews happy and ended any kind of tension that was going on. But he couldn't do it. There's something about Paul's message. There's something about this truth that Paul stood on. And for two years, he sits there. Well, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Felix went and made some really poor decisions in leadership trying to correct something. He did it the wrong way. And so Nero, the emperor, removes him from office and sends in this Festus. This is important because we pick up Acts chapter 25, verse 1. It says this. 
new leadership. Three days after Festus arrives in the province, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, if you take notes, this is interesting. Three days after arriving in office, he gets there. Three days he arrives in Jerusalem from Caesarea. That's a three-day journey. Here's why that's important. The very first thing that Festus does is invest a lot of his time in making the Jews happy. I know if I get to Jerusalem, I need to address these people. Why? Politically, when they're happy, I do well. And so for three days he journeys, he arrives in Jerusalem to handle this issue that's been going on. The chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem as they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. And he's heard this story. Felix told me about this. There was a, and, and, and uh, Claudius, there was a, a, an attempt on his life before. And I don't know that I trust these guys. And so we're not going to do that. And so he says, Paul's being held in Caesarea and I myself am going there soon. If you really want to try this guy, come with me to Caesarea and he can stand trial there and you can bring your charges against him there. Festus wants to get off on the right foot. He's trying to do the best thing. If you're reading this chapter, you're probably thinking, again, seriously, now Paul's going to have another assassination attempt on his life. He's going to get dragged in front of more leaders. If you think about this, five different times Paul gets dragged in front of different groups of leaders in just these few chapters we've been reading. And they lob all kinds of false accusations about him. And the whole time, his demeanor is just calm and cool and collected. And so whether we're walking through a pandemic or a toxic political season or tragedy or difficulty, how is it, what, what is it we learn from Paul about how we should rightly handle God's truth? Two quick things. The first thing that I'm seeing in Paul's life in this chapter is this. He's very courageous with the truth. He's very courageous with the truth. Look at verse 6. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. So the first time in years, Paul's been bringing out, he's been brought out from this prison cell. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They stand all around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, against the temple, or against Caesar. He said, I've not violated the Jewish law and started any kind of new part of the Jewish religion. I've not violated the temple by bringing a Gentile into it. I've not violated Caesar's rule by even saying Jesus is the king of the Jews. I've not said any of that. And they've come before him. Now, one commentator said this, Paul's reply could be adequately paraphrased. I didn't do it and you can't prove it. Essentially, bring it. I've, I know that what I'm standing on is true. So whatever you bring at me, I don't have to budge because it's the truth that's giving me strength. My courage is coming not from my ability to withstand the Roman government, not from my passion to stand up for it. It's coming from the fact that I know that what I'm standing on is true. I've done my homework. I've, I've experienced this. I've studied this. I know that Jesus resurrected from the dead, and because he resurrected from the dead, everything's different. So there's nothing you're going to do to me to get me to move off of this truth. But they're not going to stop trying. And they keep lobbing these things at him, all these lies, all these difficulties. And all they're saying is this. They've been saying it for chapters now. Hey, Paul, we get that you think that's true, but if you'll lighten up just a little bit, we might be able to work something out. That's what these Roman leaders keep saying to him. Like, dude, if you just water this thing down just a step, you, you, imagine a culture. I can't for the life of me think of a culture that would put so much pressure on Christians to just change one or two little things so it's a little more acceptable and not quite so offensive. Like, hey, you don't have to redefine marriage. Let's just take one step in that direction. Like, we, you don't have to do all these different, let's just change a little bit to make it a little bit less intense. We know you think it's true. 
That's what they're doing to Paul. And he's like, no, I'm not going to budge because this is the truth. It's not the way I feel. It's not even always what I want, but it's true. It's true. And so I'm going to stand on the truth. And I have to ask, what about you? I love talking to people. I'll, I'll, I'll ask them these questions. I say, hey, do you think you'd be willing to die for your faith? And, yes, I'll die for my faith. Absolutely. I always think it's great because you'll probably never have to. So it's really not a great question. The better question is, will you live for it? Will you include him in the little things? Will you filter your financial decisions or the way that you approach your marriage or the way that you lead the people that are underneath you? Will you filter all of the decisions you make about what you're going to do and how you're going to live, how you're going to raise your kids? Will you live for your faith, not just die? Will you include him in the everyday stuff? Paul was courageous, included him in everything. The second thing is this, Paul was consistent with the truth. Verse 10 says, Paul answered, I am now before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. What he's saying is you've dragged me in front of everybody. And here I am again with the same message. Nothing's changing. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know well. It's a pretty bold statement, he says to him. No matter where he was, no matter who was in front of him, no matter what leader he got pulled in front of, no matter what lies were told about him, he was going to stand firm on the truth. He's consistent. Hey, this truth is what's most important to me. And the question I have is, what about you? Are you consistent with the truth? Does it describe the way that you would live your life? Like, this is the most important thing in my life. I mean, let me give you a few ways to apply this, some of the ways that have been heavy on my heart. Uh, one of the things I started doing is I like to have my Bible out before I come to church. You don't have to do this. just an idea. One of the ways for me to take a step toward this more consistently and more courageously and to come in and be intentional about the way I handle God's truth is I like to have a physical Bible. Now, some of us don't. You like to have your phones, and that's okay. I like technology. Ask anybody that works at this church. They will tell you. Rob likes technology. I get it. But when it comes to the Bible, having a physical Bible with me has helped me. When I grab it, all of a sudden I'm focused on where I'm going and what I'm doing. It eliminates the distractions. It allows me to come into this place, and I know we're going to open this book up. And I know that when we open it up, when I'm in an adult class or I'm in here, I know that I'm going to learn where certain books of the Bible are and where certain chapters and phrases and different things. I'm going to learn how to navigate through this book. And it's going to change everything for me. Let me ask you this. When you come to New Hope, do you know that we offer classes where you can jump in deeper with some incredible teachers? I'm biased, but my father-in-law is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life with the Bible. And if he's teaching a class, you should be in it. Because he's going to open it up and you're going to learn incredible things about God's truth. What about partnering with our children's ministry? Some of us are like, well, no, I don't need to do that. Well, what, why do you think we do it? It's not babysitting. Jody labors and prays over the curriculum that we choose so that your kids are getting trained up in the Bible. Do you partner with us? Do you allow your kids to be discipled? What about student ministry? What about your 5th through 12th grade students? Do you partner with Ryan and his team and make an effort to be here for two hours so that they can be in there and they can be in here with you? Because he labors over what he's going to teach them to come alongside you to equip your kids in their knowledge of the Bible while you're being equipped in your knowledge of the Bible so when you go home, everybody's being equipped. I cannot tell you how many couches I've sat on of people who are broken because they did not take, they did not take this as seriously as they should have when they had the chance. I can't tell you what decisions to make. But when I look at the Apostle Paul, the way he handled the truth courageously and consistently, I think to myself, that should describe our families. That should describe our lives. 
When someone looks at my family and says, tell us about the Jankowski family, it should, oh yeah, like they're going to stand up firm on God's word and it's always going to be talked about. It's just a part of their life. It's who they are. That should be the first thing they talk about. When they talk about New Hope, what, tell us about New Hope. Well, you're going to learn the Bible. God's word is going to be the most important thing there. I can't speak for other churches, but I can tell you here, we're not going to play games with that. And we're not going to turn it into some entertainment value for you. We're going to teach you that it's going to be fun. And we're going to have a lot of fun along the way because families have fun. That's, that's a truth. But we will not play around with God's word. Good. We won't. It's, it's a value around here. And I can't answer that for you, but let me ask you a really hard question that I've been asking myself. 2020 has not been a great year. Amen? It's been a hard year. I think we could all agree with that. But what are the storms of 2020 revealed to you about the foundation you've been building your life on? What do all the difficult things we've walked through this year tell you about the foundation you've been building your life on? I can't answer that for you, but I can tell you this. It is never too late, ever too late to start building on the rock. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our time. This is really hard. God, this is a hard sermon. It was. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. And so my prayer is simple. Father, would you just teach us what you want us to hear? Have everybody remember what you want them to remember. Would you draw us closer to your word? And God, would you continue to shape us into the kind of people that can be entrusted with your kingdom? That's our prayer, God. Help us to become, help us to become the kind of people that you can trust with your kingdom. Father, we love you. We thank you for our time of worship this morning. Thank you for how you've called us, how you're moving among us, how you're leading us, how you're shaping us. God, we thank you that there are no shortcuts. There are no time stamps. It's not always going to be easy. It's always worth it. We love you, God, and we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.